Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. Thanks so much, Jacinta. Of course, uh, we always welcome your thoughts and views on any of the stories that we bring you today, even if we don't bring you the stories. Uh, tell us about that as well. You can do so by sending us an SMS today, 34701, 34701, those SMS, those SMSs to our hotline number cost you two rand. And, of course, uh, any thoughts uh, that you have for us today on the stories that we're bringing you. Something that's uh, picked up my eye, of course, uh, Olympic Chief uh, Tabby Reddy today says he's unconcerned about the reports that a vote of no confidence will be passed against him by the South African Football Association, Safa, that's uh, at a general meeting in Johannesburg on Saturday. Uh, Reddy said the uh, CEO of the SA Sports Confederation and Olympic Committee, Saskok, uh, said on Friday it was uh, not possible for a sports federation to oust him from his position. He said it's not possible by law to pass a motion of no confidence against him at a general meeting. He's an employee of Saskok and not a board member. Reddy uh, believing Safa officials facing a judicial inquiry into allegations of match-fixing were trying to deflect attention away from themselves. He says, as soon as you address the Federation with issues regarding money, they try and redirect the attention away from themselves. Now, apart from the uh, SAFA match-fixing inquiry and various other matters that uh, still need to be addressed at a general meeting, Reddy said the ongoing concerns at Athletics SA would also need to be discussed. Uh, Now, if you remember, the six ASA board members uh, were suspended on Wednesday this week. Uh, The ASA president, James Evans, also speaking to the media, saying that he's uh, obtained an urgent interdict in the High Court in Pretoria preventing board members from taking any further action in their attempts to remove him from his post pending the results of an arbitration meeting. Now, this, of course, followed uh, Evans' impeachment at an ASA special general meeting last month. We'd like to have your thoughts on this, uh, or like we say, any of the other stories that we're bringing you today. 34701, 34701, the comment line. You can SMS us. uh, That's at a cost of two rand. Let's go to the story. It's our top one, of course. Uh, before, uh, before we do that, of course, at this hour, Farmers Union Agri SA saying uh, many farmers in the country have poor harvests as uh, promises did not get enough rain over the past few months. Now, negotiators at uh, the Southern African Customs Union Summit, that starts in uh, Botswana, uh, in fact, this morning, say they're hopeful that they'll finalize discussions on the revenue-sharing formula by December this year. Uh, Since 2010, of course, uh, SALCO members have been renegotiating a 2002 revenue-sharing agreement. Now, that originally proposed significant revenue cuts to some of the member states. Uh, According to the current formula, although South Africa accounts for 90% of uh, SALCO's GDP, it gets less customs revenue. Now, this is because SALCO customs revenue sharing is not based on the share of GDP, but rather on the share of intra-SALCO imports. Uh, We're going to be speaking to our political role reporter in Tebo Mokobo, who's uh, going to be giving us uh, more details on this. Uh, he's, of course, attending this as he uh, follows President Jacob Zuma out today. Of course, uh, we're going to be uh, speaking to him now in Tebo, of course, uh, watching closely the uh, Southern African Customs Union Summit. Uh, a very good afternoon to you in Tebo. Thanks for joining us. Uh, what's the latest on this? Good afternoon, Deshwin, and good afternoon to the listeners. Yes, indeed, the fact just started with uh, President of Botswana, Sir Takama Ian Kama, opening the gathering. Uh, but before he started his uh, uh, speech, he uh, acknowledged that uh, today is President Jacob Zuma's birthday, together mm-hmm. with uh, Finance Minister Pravin Gordon. The President of Botswana led uh, the, the meeting with a, a song, uh, uh, singing for President Zuma on his birthday, and uh, he immediately uh, 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 moved to deliver his uh, opening speech, whereby he acknowledged uh, the, the, the importance of the, of SACU, where he, he sketched out the importance of SACU, its objectives, and of course, even uh, saying that uh, at some point there was a vision that was adopted by uh, SACU members to uh, sort of uh, come up with an equitable and sustainable development for the region, uh, for, 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 for the Union, and of course, that, that uh, uh, equitable and uh, sustainable development was informed by the fact that there has to be regional integration that is taking root in the, in, the, in the region that is subject. And, of course, that would extend or should extend to the entire continent. And, of course, he even applauded uh, some, of his, uh, some of the negotiators or all the negotiators who uh, include your technocrats from the press secretaries, the director generals, as well as the council of ministers, for ensuring that ultimately they institutionalize uh, this uh, meeting whereby 
now the, 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 this uh, meeting of, of leaders uh, or the summit itself becomes or uh, it's elevated at the apex of SACU where it has uh, uh, given the power to sort of make decisions because uh, some people are saying uh, SACU can meet, they can come up with a, a, a number of uh, a sort of proposals and mm-hmm. suggestions, but those suggestions will remain in paper for as long as they don't have the body that would uh, sort of uh, uh, enforce all those suggestions and proposals. Mm. It is President Jacob Zuma's birthday, of course, but he, he's going to be a rather busy man today with a number of negotiations taking place. As you say, these suggestions that come out from SACU, but uh, we're waiting for final decisions on, on much of what's been proposed. One of the significant ones was this revenue cuts that were being proposed to some member states, of course, based on the GDP input of certain countries. South Africa accounting for 90 percent of the GDP uh, in SACU, but still receiving less customs revenue for it. Uh, are the discussions set for this today, and, and where are we looking at those discussions now? Well, uh, the revenue sharing formula is to be discussed with some countries, as you correctly pointed out, calling for a review. Uh, some, of, some, are, some of them are saying it has to be uh, uh, reformed, because if you look at countries like Botswana, Lesotho, Namibia, and Swaziland, they heavily depended on SACU revenue. Uh, 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 and with Lesotho and Swaziland getting at least 60 to 70% of their revenue from SACU. And if you look at a country like South Africa, which accounts, as you said again, that 90% mm. of uh, SACU GDP uh, uh, comes from uh, South Africa. But when, when, when you look at the, 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 the revenue sharing service, when it was, I mean, formula, when, was, when it was mooted in 2000 and, uh, 2002, the revenue sharing figures from Botswana, for instance, was 9.1 billion rand, while Namibia was 8.1, and South Africa only at uh, 4.5, although it, it, it contributes a lot to, to, to SACU coffers. So you ask yourself, how could a country like South Africa, which accounts for almost 90% of SACU GDP, only get 15%, while Botswana, which accounts for at least 4%, gets a massive 34%. And... That on its own is because of uh, 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 the way the arrangement was made or this RSF uh, arrangement was made because uh, the, uh, the, the arrangement itself, uh, it's based on the, on, the, on the share of the GDP but not on the intra-SACU imports or the trade amongst SACU uh, uh, countries. So that uh, issue is to be discussed and maybe uh, at the end of the meeting, uh, negotiators, because they, they, they left to read out the communique, in that communique, maybe sort of a progress will be contained in that communique in terms of whether these leaders agree to change or to amend the, the revenue sharing formula. And we'll leave there with our senior political reporter in Tema Mokobo in Khabarone, Botswana. Thanks so much for your time there. Our top story at this hour, it's uh, just after 14 minutes after 12. Farmers Union AgriSA saying uh, many farmers in the country have poor harvests as uh, some provinces did not get enough rain over the past few months. Uh, just quickly looking at the markets today, gold trading at $1,548.40 per fine ounce, platinum $1,519.50 an ounce. The rand trading at 8 rand 90 cents against the dollar, 13 rand 70 to the pound sterling and 11 rand 70 cents to the euro. Uh, Sudhir Singh on uh, on the line for us uh, to talk to us. He's going to give us, uh, of course, uh, Sudhir uh, would normally be giving us uh, an update on this. Uh, let's let's uh, get uh, an update now on this story. Former President uh, Nelson Mandela's grandson, Chief Mandela Mandela, will hold a media conference today about the legal battle of a section of the Mandela Family Trust. The conference is... Uh, to be held at his rural home in Mvezo. We'll get more details on this shortly. It's exactly a quarter past 12. Sasa would like to inform all beneficiaries who have not been able to re-register for their new Sasa payment cards that they will be given a 30-day grace period to re-register before end April 2013. Sasa will be sending out letters of notification in May 2013 informing non-compliant beneficiaries of their intention to stop their grants within 90 days. Home visits for the sick, frail and senior citizens over 75 years, as well as care dependency grant beneficiaries, will continue as scheduled until end May 2013. Sasa, paying the right grant to the right person at the right time and place, Jalo.
Gear yourself for 22 exciting regular Friday evening appointments because Nuit for Nuit is back. We're going to rock you again with brand new music challenges, bubbling contestants, brilliant guest artists and our red-hot band. Kick off your shoes, phones off the hook, on with your music hats and come and sing, play and laugh along with us. See you every Friday evening at 7.30 on SABC2 for the usual fun and games associated with Nuit for Nuit. Can't wait. Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. A very good afternoon. I'm Darshan Mudley. Bangi Gwala out today. Hopefully he's having a good weekend. I'm going to join you just for this uh, Friday edition, keeping you company until 1 o'clock. Of course, if you'd like to talk to us today, 34701, 34701, SMS is at a cost of 2 rand. And let us know what you think of the stories we're bringing you today. Of course, uh, we'd like to hear your thoughts on Olympic Chief Tabby Reddy today saying he's unconcerned about reports that a vote of no confidence will be passed against him by the South African Football Association at a general meeting in Johannesburg tomorrow. Uh, Reddy, of course, the CEO of the SA Sports Confederation and Olympic, Olympic Committee saying uh, it's not possible for a sports confederation to oust him from his post. So let us know what you think about that story and uh, the stories that we've brought you and perhaps this story if you'd like to. Former President Nelson Mandela's grandson today, Chief Mandela Mandela, will hold a media conference about the legal battle over a section of the Mandela Family Trust. The conference is uh, to be held at his rural home in Mvezo. This follows the legal battle and a court application by Madiba's two daughters who demanded the withdrawal of the trustees from the trust. For more on this now, we're joined on the line by reporter Unati Bingwase. A very good afternoon to you, Unati. Thanks for joining us. Briefly, first, uh, just give us some background to this story. What exactly is this conference about? Well, it has announced uh, on, on Wednesday that um, there was a court application um, allegedly by Zelani and Magazoo Mandela where they were disputing uh, the directorship of companies uh, established uh, to, 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 to take care of uh, the sales of uh, rather the proceeds of uh, a certain section of Mandela's um, um, family trust. And uh, in that affidavit, it is alleged that uh, Mandela, rather Manda Mandela uh, also backed that. And um, Mandela uh, called us today to actually clarify his standpoint on that issue, saying that he was never, never involved in that and he is distancing from it totally. Mm. Uh, has uh, Chief Mandela Mandela uh, addressed the media conferences yet? Luckily, he has. We have managed to convince him to give us um, an interview earlier than scheduled, um, where he, he told us that he has never had any interaction with the people involved in that um, court application, that is his two aunts, uh, Zenani and Magadou Mandela, saying that he, it is also, he finds it very, very disturbing and distasteful um, that something like this has happened, saying that it is against their tradition as the temples and uh, they have principles as the Mandela's um, to go to court and uh, maybe discuss issues like this while um, the person who, who is at the center of it is still alive. He, he says he trusts that uh, Matiba has appointed people who are more than capable of taking um, care of those issues. So he says he does not want his name to be involved in that issue ever again. Mm. Uh, Unati, do we know any more details about what's actually involved in this estate? What what assets are we talking about? What we have been um, hearing is that it's um, actually artworks uh, that involve Mandela. Um, from the information that we received, that. Um, it's, it's shamed artworks, and we, we, it's not really, really clear what these artworks are about, but obviously they involve lots and lots of money, um, and then the sale of it will result to, a lot, to lots of money going to the family members of the Mandela family. And uh, Manda Mandela, like I said, he says he, he is not aware of the court application, uh, questioning the three men who are allegedly directors of these two companies that are tasked to take care of the process and ensure that they are channeled properly. Mm. Uh, there's a number of high-profile names mentioned in this. Uh, George Bezos, uh, a, a close personal friend and, and lawyer to the elder statesman as well. Have there been any comments from uh, the family members or, or, of those involved in the case or perhaps these individuals themselves? We haven't had anything, um, neither from the two daughters of Mandela 
or they, they, the men who are allegedly involved in this thing, uh, that is George Bezos, Tony uh, Sekhwale, and uh, um, Bani Chwene. But um, Mandela, I suppose, he just wanted to clarify his standpoint and clear his name from all um, these reports and um, ensure that his name is never, ever involved in it. But he, it is alleged that he, indeed it is happening. There were some court papers that were filed uh, at a court in Johannesburg, allegedly by Zenani um, and, and, and Magazu Mandela. Uh, but Manza, like he said, he's, he is not aware of any such. And he's, he, the, the reports that he also signed an affidavit in support of um, questioning the, the directors of these companies, um, uh, there, there's no truth in those reports. Mm. Uh, any idea of how he plans to take this forward? Has uh, Chief Mandela Mandela indicated any action that he plans to take? Well, in terms of um, legal action, he did not indicate. Instead, uh, he suggested that um, maybe the family should rather channel all its energy towards ensuring and um, taking good care of Nagiba. As you know, that he's been in and out of hospital over the past couple of months. He says they should leave these things to, to, to the lawyers and the attorneys that have been uh, appointed to take care of these issues. And they, as a family, should, should instead uh, focus all their energy towards ensuring uh, that Mandela's health improves. Mm. Uh, that was actually a question I wanted to ask you, Nati. Was there any mention of uh, of Nelson Mandela himself or, or perhaps his health today? We did ask him about Amadiba's um, health, and he says um, he's not in the best of conditions, but um, he, he's coping just fine, and uh, um, he's actually in high spirits and happy to be back at home from hospital. So he says he's in good shape. I mean, he's an elderly person; he won't be in the best of shapes like um, the, uh, like the young person he, he was back then. But he says he's in, in a good condition from for a man his age. We'll leave it there with our reporter in the Eastern Cape, Unati Bing Ose, of course, telling us uh, former President Nelson Mandela's grandson, uh, Chief Mandela Mandela, today holding a media conference about the legal battle over the section of uh, the Mandela Family Trust. As you heard there, Unati managing to get an exclusive interview with uh, Chief Mandela uh, ahead of that media conference. So you're hearing this news first. Uh, of course, uh, Nelson Mandela's grandson saying he has nothing to do with this at all. Uh, Unati Bing Kose, of course, our report on that story. Let's get more on this now. Instances of police brutality in South Africa have made headlines in the past few years. These include the killings of Andres Tatane during a protest in the Free State and the killing of 34 minors in an unprotected strike. While the police ministry has condemned the violence, it's also defended its officers, stating that police are faced with violent situations. Ayanda Mkwanazi filing this report. In 2011, Andres Tatane was killed during a violent protest in the Free State, allegedly by the police and in full view of the public. In 2012, 34 minors from Marikana also died during a confrontation with the police. And this year, a taxi driver, Mido Masia, died while in police custody after being dragged through the streets of Davidson while in a police vehicle. His crime? He allegedly parked his taxi in the wrong lane. Police Minister Natim Tetwa while condemning these actions, says police are faced with enormous challenges on duty. Officers and police force anywhere in the world is one force which has enormous power. And if that power is not checked, uh, it leads to things like fatalities and so on. There's been enormous violence in the strikes. It hasn't been an easy job for the police to police in South Africa today with all the challenges which okay. are facing. The acquittal of the police officers involved in Andres Tatane's death has led to public outcry, with interest groups questioning the country's judicial system. While Marikana Commission of Inquiry has since been established to get to the bottom of what really happened on that fatal day. Crime activist Yusuf Abramji says the image of the police service has been damaged. If the police wants to improve the image, they need to change their behavior. I can't understand in today's times, every police vehicle, why don't they have a camera equipped in every vehicle with sound? to look at their behavior. So I think it's a combination of factors that will lead us to where the police ought to be going. The public seems to agree that police brutality has gone out of control and have questioned the role of the police service. I don't believe that the majority of police are hardworking. I don't believe that the majority of police are decent. I believe that they are led criminally. The police are cruel. They beat you up while in custody in cells. I'm a victim. 15 April 2010. Been arrested, pepper sprayed in the cell, beaten to a pulp. The reputation of the policing system in South Africa is under threat. So I'm actually wondering if there'll ever be a tipping point where we say uh, enough is enough.
Meanwhile, Patrick Craven of Kosatu says there's a certain classification when it comes to policing and justice, where money buys justice. If you're wealthy, can afford good lawyers, you will not be treated in the same way as if you're in a poor community in Kailitra. Let's not forget that in the Davidson incident, uh, until the video footage was shown on television, mm. the senior police officers were denying it. That was their instinctive yeah. response. Vulnerable groups such as migrant and sex workers have also been victimized by the police. Members of these groups claim to have been assaulted by the police or they say that police do not act against the perpetrators of the crime. In 70% of sex workers who complain to us or seek legal advice from us have experienced police violence. Of a thousand, over a thousand sex workers that we asked the question of, 55% said they had experienced violence from police officers. Although they are the ones that are suffering the crime, shops being attacked and looted of non-nationals, if they report the crime, the police might come, but they just stand there and watch while the looting takes place and do nothing. Again, if they go and report crimes in the police station, there's so many cases where people are just not, treat, not taken seriously. Political analyst Professor Adam Habib says one of the solutions to curbing the violent behavior of the police is by changing the institutional culture of the police service. You have great police services around the world, but as long as the culture changes, the institutional culture doesn't change, and that's an issue of practice, not policy. As long as that doesn't change, we've got a problem. And the only way you're going to change that is if we send a very strong message that citizens are meant to be protected. Anybody that dies, we will act with the full force of the law from the top from the president down. The second you have to professionalize the police because if we don't address those two things, the crises will continue and South Africans as a whole will lose out. In addition, Police Minister Natim Tetwa has urged the public to respect the laws of the country during their protests in order to assist them in upholding law and order safely. We would urge the public to really understand the fact that there are laws in the country. And if all of us can emphasize that point, that people should not be armed in, this, in these demonstrations, so that we know that the task of ensuring that South Africans are and feel safe becomes the task of all of us. We'll continue engaging communities. We'll continue pointing out to those things and dealing with those elements which are not supposed to be in the police. And that report by Ayanda Mkwanazi in Johannesburg. Let's uh, go to this case, which uh, deals with alleged police brutality. Then the uh, case against the nine Davidson policemen accused of killing Mozambican taxi driver Mido Masia has been postponed in the Benoni Magistrates' Court to the 24th of May for further investigations. The officers are accused of dragging Masia behind a police van in February. He was later found dead in the uh, Davidson police station's holding cells. Norma Bolani with more. The National Prosecuting Authority still has to decide which forum should hear the trial, the High Court or the Regional Court. Magistrate Sir Magamu denied the men bail on March 12th, saying it was not in the interest of justice. Messia was filmed as he was tied to the back of a police van and dragged along the streets in Davidson on February 26 for parking his taxi at the wrong place. He was found dead in the holding cell several hours later. Tensions ran high in Davidson following the incident, with residents claiming that police brutality was common in their community. Masia's landlord, Badani Silenguenya, who's been in touch with Masia's father in Mozambique, says the family is strong and hopeful that justice will prevail. She says they still believe in the justice system. Family lawyer Jose Nascimento says they're going ahead with the civil suit against Police Minister Natin Tetwa relating to the alleged police brutality. He says they're hoping to reach a settlement as there is no intention to sue the South African government. Nascimento says he's confident that an amicable settlement can be reached. Norma Bolani, SABC News, Baloney. And of course, if you'd like to comment on any of these stories, 34701. 34701. That's our SMS hotline and costs you two rand to SMS us. We'd love to hear your thoughts on any of the stories that we've brought you today. And of course, uh, Asanda's going to bring you more. Asanda Matsonyane. I'm not sure if I'm saying it right. Matsonyane. Okay. I'm trying. <laughs> it's okay. It's Asanda. And of course, whenever I listen to Midday Live and I enjoy listening to Bongi and of course to you, Asanda, I always like listening to Nancy as well. And I've never had a chance to speak to Nancy Richards. This is my first time. And of course, uh, otherwise, coming up at one o'clock, Nancy. Good afternoon. How well, are you? greetings, greetings. And I too listen to you in the evening and think, oh, what a nice man he is. So there we go. We've got to meet each other at last. Well, what we've got coming up on Otherwise today, we've got to, it's food. It's Food Friday, I tell you, on Otherwise. We're going to be hearing about the confessions of a hungry woman. 
tuck into the delicious world of taste festivals. That's from the international coordinator who's here for the taste of Cape Town. We'll be getting some hints from a Bocarp cook's kitchen. And in our Women's Organization's Friday feature, we're going to hear all about the Black Lily Africa Collective. So do join us for that. Thanks, Dashan. Thanks so much, Nancy. I'm looking forward to it. Let's uh, look at this story now as we cross to an international one. The uh, United Nations and the World Health Organization today have announced a $6 billion U.S. dollar plan to virtually eliminate child deaths from pneumonia and severe diarrhea in Africa and South Asia. The integrated strategy, they called it, uh, announced in Geneva today, includes access to better sanitation and newer vaccines. It's a 10-year action plan aiming to stop 2 million children under the age of five dying each year from killer diseases. WaterAid, an international NGO dedicated exclusively to the provision of safe water, sanitation and hygiene to the world's poorest people, says that the action plan calls for a substantial shift in poverty reduction efforts. Well, on the line from the event in Geneva is their senior policy analyst for health at WaterAid, Yael Velleman. A very good afternoon to you, uh, Yael. Thanks for joining us. Uh, do you believe that these targets uh, set within this plan are, are achievable within the next decade? Hi, good afternoon. Yes, I think they are achievable. Um, as you say, it will require a shift in thinking as well as financing, but yes, they are achievable. Mm. It, it talks about this integrated approach, and, and your reaction to it has been that this is a, a substantial shift in, in the way that we've been doing things. Uh, how, how is it su- such a different approach from, from what we've been doing currently? Are, are we not working together? Um, unfortunately, no, not at the moment. Um, what we're actually talking about here is an, a comprehensive package of key interventions. Um, and unfortunately, if we look at the countries with the highest burden for pneumonia and diarrhea, those interventions are not always applied everywhere. And the poorest and hardest to reach populations are the ones that normally don't get access to those, those interventions. Um, then there's a difference between the prioritization um, of the easy medical interventions versus uh, the harder to do things that, that are potentially much more important for protecting children, such as water, sanitation, and hygiene. Mm. Uh, what are some of the stop gaps? What, what are the things that uh, most countries are doing that, that aren't really dealing with the challenge today? You said it's, it's requiring this more, more integrated approach. Um, well, most of it is, is the failure to work together between sectors and between programs. We are seeing a lack of coordination. We're seeing duplication of efforts, but also failure to use the available resources, and that's something that was highlighted in the launch today. Um, so what we're hearing, which is the strongest message, is that um, we don't need to choose interventions. It's not about choosing which intervention is best value for money, but that doing the entire package together um, has the most gains um, in terms of cost effectiveness, in terms of equity, and reaching those that are hardest to reach. Mm. Uh, which countries would, would, would be the key to spearheading some of these efforts, uh, especially when we talk about Africa? Um, well, the, the highest numbers of deaths uh, are in countries like Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, obviously because of their size. But if we look at race, we're also talking about countries such as Niger and Mali um, and Ethiopia. Um, but I do want to make the point that although there are specific countries where the mortality is very high, we also need to look at the, the burden of the disease itself, even if children aren't dying. If we think about South Africa alone, there's still a very, very high rate of children who are stunted, who are not growing properly. That's 24% um, in South Africa. And 25% of of that stunting can be attributed to children having repeated episodes of diarrhea. So we're not just talking about mortality. We're talking about um, improving child health and life prospects across the continent. Mm. Where does the money come from, though, Yale? Did did the UN indicate where the $6 billion US dollars fund would come from to pay for these vaccines, but also, as you say, to improving access to hygiene, water and sanitation. Well, there are existing pots of money that we're all um, putting together. There are huge efforts on water and sanitation. Um, there is the Gavi Alliance that's providing vaccines, but also um, provision for health system strengthening. We've got the Every Woman, Every Child effort um, to which lots of um, agencies, NGOs, private sector entities have been um, 
put in the fund. But I think the important point to make here is that there's going to need to be um, domestic investment as well by mm. governments of these high burden countries. Um, and also for the country, the, the agencies that are supposed to supporting those countries to make sure that the financing is being channeled in the right way to the right programs to enable the best effect. Yael Velleman, thank you for joining us. Uh, she's WaterAid's Senior Policy Analyst for Health, uh, talking to us from Geneva, where the UN and uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, today announcing a $6 billion US dollar plan to virtually eliminate child deaths from pneumonia and severe diarrhea in Africa and South Asia. And it's a 10-year action plan that aims to do it by 2025. Uh, just going on to 23 minutes to 1 o'clock now, let's uh, go to Korea, uh, where we'll uh, have more stories, of course, uh, as we go into an international story. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State uh, John Kerry is in South Korea for talks on the escalating tensions on the Korean Peninsula. Kerry is discussing the crisis with uh, President Park Jun-hyu and, and his South Korean counterpart, as well as his U.S. military commanders in the country. U.S. officials have said he will use his Asian tour to urge China to use its influence to rein in Pyongyang. Kerry's visit comes as the U.S. report said the North could be capable of launching a nuclear armed missile, the BBC's John Woodworth reports. This trip has been in the planning for more than a month, but it's been given, of course, a renewed sense of urgency because of the recent rising tension on the peninsula. Mr Kerry is bringing a message of reassurance here to South Korea. The more difficult part of his trip, though, will be in the next few days when he visits Beijing, where he is expected to try to push China to do more to rein North Korea in. And if you want a sense of how difficult and complex and sometimes hard to read the situation is on the Korean Peninsula, into the mix in the, in the past few hours has been this news out of Washington about a defence intelligence assessment that North Korea now may be capable of putting a nuclear weapon on a missile. The latest shocking revelation came not in the form of fiery rhetoric from North Korea, but was quietly unveiled during an open hearing on Washington's Capitol Hill. There is now moderate confidence that North Korea can mount a nuclear weapon on a missile, although with low reliability, according to the US Defense Intelligence Agency. But the idea that this young, inexperienced leader might have a deliverable nuclear warhead in his hands was quietly played down by US officials. The assessment, they said, was lower level and not approved by the full intelligence community. What's clear, though, is that America is concerned about a growing threat. Now's the time for uh, North Korea to uh, end uh, the uh, kind of belligerent uh, uh, approach that uh, they've been taking uh, and uh, to try to lower temperatures. Nobody wants to see a conflict on the Korean Peninsula. While John Kerry's trip to South Korea, China and Japan was planned more than a month ago, the recent rising tensions have of course given it a new sense of urgency. But it is this new line about the real state of North Korea's nuclear weapon capabilities that perhaps raises the more difficult strategic questions. The recent angry threats and rhetoric have largely been dismissed as bluster, posturing for effect. But being closer than previously thought to having a nuclear missile, however untested or unreliable, is for many governments in this region a far more alarming prospect. China is said to be reluctant to push its old ally North Korea too hard, of course, but as tensions rise, ironically, the US may find itself with more leverage because if it considers shifting military resources into this region, that makes China very nervous. And Mr Kerry may take that message to Beijing. The more you refuse to push North Korea, the more we will consider moving into Asia in response.
And that was the BBC's John Woodworth reporting from Seoul, the capital of South Korea. Let's go to this international story as well. Campaigning has ended in Venezuela ahead of this weekend's presidential election, the first vote in almost 20 years in which uh, Hugo Chavez will not be a candidate. Before he died last month, he told his his supporters to vote for his former vice president, Nicolas Maduro, but uh, opposition candidate Hendrik Capriles Radonsky, who uh, lost his 10 percentage points to Mr. Chavez, in October's election and is well behind in the polls, says he believes the tide of support is now turning against the Venezuelan government. We'll see. The BBC's Will Grant reports. Hysterical fans, expectant crowds, but they're not waiting for the latest Venezuelan pop sensation. They're here to see the man they want to be the next Venezuelan president, Enrique Capriles Redonsky. The opposition's candidate, young and telegenic, ran Hugo Chavez closer than any other challenger during his time in office. This time around, he says, Hugo Chavez isn't on the ballot. From the back of his campaign bus, he insisted he can win. In every election in which President Chavez wasn't directly involved, the governing party couldn't get more than six million votes. What's going to happen on Sunday? It's a good question, but I think we're going to win. There's a euphoria which goes far beyond any normal election. Away from the noise and chaos of the election campaign, places like Chuspa, a fishing village which relies on local tourism to survive. If Mr Capriles is to win the presidency, he won't just need the urban centres, but he'll need hundreds of small villages like this one on the shores of the Caribbean. Traditionally Chavista in colour, they'll be tough to wrestle from the hands of the revolution. The fishermen in Chuspa have benefited from Mr Chavez's high social spending of the country's oil money in the form of new boats, motors and fishing nets. There is also a subsidised supermarket in the town and local pro-Chavez supporters say the government's candidate, Nicolas Maduro, will win here comfortably. On Sunday a new page will be written in Venezuela. In this village alone, 500 of the 700 votes will be for Maduro. People say Nicolás isn't Chávez. Well, look, Chávez is Nicolás, and Nicolás is Chávez. But even in a traditional stronghold like Chuspa, there are ominous signs for the government, with some Chavistas saying privately that they might abstain. Such fears, however, haven't slowed down Mr. Maduro. As his campaign reaches a crescendo, he knows he has a final card up his sleeve that his challenger doesn't. The Dugo Chavez's last request was that his followers vote for Maduro. And that was the BBC's Will Grant reporting from Venezuela. We're going to talk to uh, Janet Witten shortly as we find out the uh, sporting events to look out for at the weekend. But uh, bringing it back home to our local markets now, let's say a very good afternoon to Saswin Securities, Sudhir Singh. Sudhir, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us. Good afternoon. How are the markets looking going into the weekend? Well, global markets have pulled back going into the weekend after a string of multi-year highs as investors uh, lock in profits this morning. European stocks uh, fell snapping four days of gains as investors trade cautiously ahead of U.S. retail sales data due later on this afternoon. Over on Wall Street, uh, stocks notched up another day of record gains uh, on the back of improved sales amongst the retailers yesterday. However, just taking a look at the U.S. stock futures this morning, it is pointing to some profit-taking later this afternoon. On the local front, uh, the JSC has been dragged into negative territory as the miners weigh on the market. In the absence of any uh, corporate news, we are seeing some consolidation going into the weekend. Taking a look at our local indices, we've got the gold index, which is down 0,8%. Resource 10 index is down 0,9%. Industrial 25 index is down 0,6%. The financial index is down 0,7%. And overall, the market is down around 274 points, or 0,7% to 38,823. Which stocks are on the move today, Sudhir? On the upside, we've got uh, Rabex, uh, which is up uh, almost 3% at uh, 19 rands and 80 cents. City Lodge is up uh, just over 1% at 118 rands and 80 cents. PPC is up 1% at 34 rands and 60 cents. Second Pay is up 0.8% at uh, 42 rands and 10 cents. And on the downside, we have uh, Harmony, which is down just over 3% at 53 rands. MTN is down just over 1.5% at 160 rands and 90 cents. 
Richmond is down just over a percent at 69 rands and 70 cents. And lastly, we have ShopRite, which is also down just over a percent at 178 rands and 10 cents. Oh, what about the latest indicators? Currently, gold is trading at $1,548.40 uh, an ounce. Platinum is at uh, $1,519.50 an ounce. Brent crude is at $103 per barrel. And finally, we have the RAND, which is trading at uh, $8.90 to the dollar. 13 rand 70 cents to the pound and 11 rand 70 cents to the euro. That's it for me. Thanks so much, uh, Sudhir Singh from Sasfin Securities. Midday Live on SAFM, 104 to 107. 14 minutes to 1. The only time I've ever spoken to Janet Witten before has been on AM. Now we get a chance to speak on midday. I don't think I'm ever going to get a chance to speak to you on PM. No, I'm sleeper then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and we have that guy who comes to work in short pants and a t-shirt and and, and, such, and sporting and pink toenails. <laughs> Let me just add, pink toenails. He See, brings that into, into the PM Live studio every <laughs> afternoon. And how cold is it? I know I'm from Durban, but still, it's cold. Beast it's going to get worse. Yeah. It's well, get worse. And, and what about the Sascock meeting? Is it going to be cold in there no, today? That's uh, I think that's very hot. <laughs> the, the sports body meeting? They are having a meeting this morning. It's not an unscheduled meeting. It's it's quite a it's quite a strange situation happening there at Saskatchewan. It's a scheduled meeting that they were having. They were originally what what happened in the last couple of months is that all of the sports federations they're trying to kind of get the house in order as far as all the sports federations are concerned. They all had to deregister and re-register, make sure that all their books are in order, that all their 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 corporate governance things are in the right place mm. and everything. And that was what this this meeting was originally about. But of course. If Events over the last week have just kind of taken over the meeting, and it's going to be focused now on athletics because of the crazy, crazy goings on. I mean, I could sit here for the next two mm. hours and try and try and explain what's going on in Between athletics, the South Africa. Board members of ASA. board members that were suspended, but actually, are they suspended because right. we don't know if James Evans have? has the right to suspend them? And James Evans, is he the president or is he because he was impeached, but he's challenged that in court, and the court says he could go back to his job, but the six board members are allowed. Yes. could go on. It keeps going. And, <laughs> and, and, going and, and now crazy. today we see uh, Tubby Reddy entering in on the fray as well, the Olympic chief as well. Tubby Reddy is very, very angry about the whole situation because, mm. and, and, and very rightly, um, Tubby says, you know, what about the athletes? They, and that's what's going to happen today is that Saskok are actually going to consider taking the welfare of the athletes away from Athletic South Africa until they get their house in order because this is a world championship here. The World Championships take place in Moscow in August. Um, the South African National Championships start today in, in Stellenbosch. They are going ahead because the Western Province Athletics Association has actually organ- done the sort of physical organizing mm. of that. So that's continuing as scheduled. But as far as the, the, the athletes who have international aspirations are concerned, they don't know what the selection criteria are. They don't know what kind of backing they're going to get to get, um, to get some international uh, competition ahead of the World Championships. So it's a very difficult situation for the athletes themselves. Mm. E- easily we can continue talking about <laughs> this and, and, and really the, the, the plethora of woes from the match-fixing scandals as well, which we haven't even mentioned. But l- let's talk a little bit about uh, the big match this weekend, uh, the Chiefs and the Celtics. Yes, that match taking place. It's the quarterfinals of the Ned Bank Cup, of course. That's tomorrow night's match. Uh, Kaiser Chiefs against Bloemfontein Celtic. On, the, on paper, Chiefs shouldn't find it too difficult. They had a very good win over Bloemfontein Celtic in the PSL a couple of weeks ago. Um, three nil and it was the it was the the biggest defeat mm. that Bloom Celtic have, have got in in a while. But this match is taking place at the Free State Stadium. Bloom Celtic are not a bad team. Um, so I think that's gonna be a really, really interesting in, interesting match. I mean, you know, my heart says my heart says Kaiser Chiefs, but I'm a little nervous. A chance for some revenge maybe. Definitely. There are three other matches of course this weekend. Mamelodi Sundowns against Platinum Stars. That'll be a big one um, over the weekend too. That's on Sunday afternoon. The early game tomorrow is Maritzburg United against Supersport United, you know, even though that's a Marisburg home game, Supersport really should have the better of that one. And then the final game is actually an all-first division affair, so it guarantees the first division team in the semi-finals of the Ned Bank Cup. United FC face African Warriors. Mm, there's, uh, there's been some rugby today as well. The most uh, interesting match uh, going to be tomorrow, the two local super rugby derbies. They are. Yes, today's match was kind of arbitrary, really, in terms of South Africa. It was the Highlanders against the Brumbies. The Brumbies back on track again. They beat the Highlanders by 30 points to 12. But all South African interest is tomorrow. Um, the first match featuring a South African team is at... Uh, 
quarter to 12 tomorrow, the Kings face the Rebels. That could be an interesting one. The Rebels are, are a very up-and-down team. So the Kings, if they get their act together, actually could pose a challenge there. But the two afternoon games are going to be absolutely amazing. The, the, the Coastal Derby, uh, Stormers against the Sharks, that's the 5 o'clock game. Um, I don't think I want to call that one. Mm. Um, the, the, the Stormers haven't been playing very well, so I think the Sharks might have the edge there. But the one I'm actually more interested in is the Bulls against the Cheetahs at Loftus. Because in any other year, you would have said the Bulls at Loftus against the Cheetahs, it's, it's a no-brainer. But the Cheetahs have come off the most extraordinary Australasian tour, where they've won five in a row. They've never beaten the Bulls in Super Rugby. Um, this is their big chance. Well, the, the, you know, the Sharks are definitely going to win it, though, on that, on that <laughs> oh, yes, match. Oh, yes, yes, uh, Mr. Durban, man. I, I don't have any bias <laughs> on that story. Um, golf today. I'm not a big golf fan, but let, let's admit the U.S. Masters is something to it's get one, a little bit excited about, right? It's one of those kind yeah. of romantic, you yeah. know, it's, it's, an, and it's by invitation only, and it has all these kind of funny quirks, and it's a, the Augusta National until about a year ago didn't allow women members. They now have two, by the way. <laughs> Condoleezza Rice is one of them. Um, they only invited their first black member about 10 years ago. So, mm. I mean, you know, there's all sorts of things involved in it, but it is, it's an extraordinary course. It's the most amazing place. Um, and the two at the top of the leaderboard are Sergio Garcia and Mark Leishman. Who, I hear you ask, mm. I can't tell you anything about him other than that he's from Australia. I don't think he's going to stay there, to be perfectly honest. Everybody's talking about this little Chinese I want to hear about this. Uh, where did he come from? Well, obviously he Chinese. He came but, from Germany. But, 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 you know, where, he, how did he, he make this he appearance? He, he made this appearance because he won the Asian Amateur event, which gives you an automatic qualification place, um, which at the age of 14 is a pretty extraordinary right. achievement in itself. He played really well yesterday. He shot a 73. That's one over pass. So he's far from being out of it um, because because all, all, the top 50 and um, all those within 10 shots of the lead will make the cut. I think he has a very, very good chance of making the cut. He was composed. He was he was comfortable within the crowd. He's, he's an amazing talent. He really is an amazing talent. Apparently, his father said when he was, when he was really young, he saw him play. Um, he was watching his father play, and he just couldn't get the club out of his hands, so then he just encouraged him from then on. And he's been traveling around the world. He's been to the U.S. a few times mm. already. But he's a... Chinese native, he's mm. the real deal. And, and putting these masters to shame, which is great to watch. How, uh, just quickly, how are the South Africans doing? Um, the best South African, funnily enough, is Trevor Immelman, the one that you wouldn't have counted. He shot a 68, so he's two, um, two over par. All the other South Africans are sort of there or thereabouts. The only one who's, who's probably completely out of it is Brandon Grace. He really struggled to a 78, so he's unlikely to make the cut. But the others are still there, Immelman, Tim Clark, Charles Wartel, any else. They've all got a chance. Janet Whitten, good to talk to you, of course, uh, keeping you abreast of the sports this uh, weekend. Of course, if you're interested in arts and culture, not a sporting person, our Create Slot, up next. Create is proudly presented by Business and Arts South Africa, bringing the business of the arts and the art of business together. The National Arts Festival this week announced the program for this year's festival. It'll take place in Grahamstown from the 27th of June until the 7th of July. There's a strong and diverse lineup of dance, theatre, visual arts and film. And Ishmael Mohammed, the artistic director of the festival, says that they've brokered new partnerships this year. It's important for the sustainability of the festival as the funding arena has become more challenging. Apart from a program that celebrates the diversity of work that we have coming from our artists, we've been able to bring newer institutions to come on board as partners. I think when partnerships are broken and they're broken effectively so that there's mutual benefit for the art institution and for the funder, I think you have a relationship that allows both parties to continually review what they're doing and to continue to strengthen their partnership. I think there's a healthy dialogue that's currently taking place amongst the art sector where people are beginning to recognize the need not to go it alone but to work together. And I think that is an important and a major breakthrough for the art sector. I think for a long time we had discussions as artists and funders. Now we're having discussions as artists with artists, as festivals with festivals. We're not in competition with each other. We're all in the same sector, working for the same ends. We are facilitators. 
for the artists, and we need to be talking to each other. The festival will give three new theatres the opportunity to showcase their work on the main programme. According to Mohammed, the power of the main programme can be seen with Kickstart Productions and the Playhouse Theatre, which were given the opportunity to showcase their work in previous years and now have become part of the national circuit. The power of the main theatre is so big that any company that comes onto the main programme and takes that opportunity and produces work of excellence grabs media attention, grabs audience attention, and grabs the attention of management. We've seen that will happen with Kickstart, and I think what they've developed for themselves is a circuit of managements that are interested in their work, but they've also developed a national audience for their work. And I think we're seeing more and more companies recognizing the power of that, of coming to the main, striving to the main. And one of the things that we want to constantly do is that we don't want to make the main an easy access. The main has to be that place of aspiration, that you have to do the best work in order to get there. For more information on the program, you can log on to the website www.nationalartsfestival.co.za. Whilst Grahamstown is gearing up for the National Arts Festival, Cape Town is gearing up to host the World Design Capital next year. Elaine Riesberg is the CEO of the Cape Town Design NPC, the implementing agency for the World Design Capital, Cape Town 2014. She explains the reason she believes that Cape Town has been awarded the honour. I think we won out against cities like Dublin and Bilbao, who are very richly endowed with deep architectural fabric, you know, old buildings, old stories, hundreds of years old. But the story that Cape Town animated through its bid was about the ability and the willingness to solve problems to very gritty problems. They led with the tagline of live design, transform life. And what they showed was that there is so much going on in terms of low-cost housing, infrastructure, transportation, sewage, all these things that emerging market cities have more in common with us, really, than we have with the developed world. So Cape Town was able to animate a story that there are people working on the ground coming up with completely new approaches to seemingly intractable problems. Riesberg says they've created four themes which will be used to categorize the projects, events and initiatives of the year-long program. We have four themes. Number one is African innovation, global conversation. These are African ideas that speak to the world. The nominations that we've received are around software applications that started in Africa that other people are now using that the developed world is taking a look at. The second one is bridging the divide, and this is really where we call for proposals where people can tell us about existing or future events that attempt to reconcile communities. When you think of this theme, bridging the divide, in a more literal sense, the fan walk in Cape Town connects the walking public to the stadium during the World Cup, and that was bridging a divide. Our third theme is a very topical one that the whole world is obsessed with, and that's today for tomorrow, which is about sustainable solutions for people and planets. So things that really are a legacy for the future. And the fourth theme is what most people associate with the word design, which really is the end process of thinking. It's that object, that beautiful building, an interior, fashion, jewelry. For more information on the submission process and dates, you can go on to www.wdccapetown2014.com. I'm Michelle Constant. This feature was produced by Monique Stunder, and you can email me on create at barsa.co.za. Create, proudly brought to you by Business and Arts South Africa, creating new opportunities for business arts partnerships. Email create at barsa.co.za. Just a couple SMSs to end off the program. This one from Gerson. He writes, In Cryfontaine Police Station, we can report the wrongdoing of officers, but no one can do anything about it. Gerson, write to us. Let us know about the details, and we'll pass on that to a reporter in your area. Uh, Nisi Mokwena in Bushbuck writes, uh, Manuel is a member of the DA working for the ANC. The ANC must do something about that, says uh, Mokwena. Uh, this one from Paseka Makoti Saku is donating our poverty alleviation funds to a rich Botswana. All Sadiq countries should be dissolved into one Mzansi Republic. And this one, unsigned, I say South African police is a legal thief. Tell us why, at least. This uh, program brought to you thanks to the team, Mabu Baluka, Molebekeng Sabidi, acting senior producer, Normalisa Mandela, technical producer, President Machai, executive producers, Busi Chane and Aubrey Sechia. Nancy Richards standing by with otherwise, but first...